It's 5 o'clock. You're listening to KZMU Moab Community Radio. The show is This Week in Moab, and I'm your host, Christy Williams-Stunton. Grand County Hospice is pleased to present the Nights of Grief and Mystery, the Rough Gods Duo Tour, to Moab September 17th in Star Hall this year. This performance will be offered free to the public with donations gratefully accepted to the Grand County Hospice Program. It is a real pleasure to be able to have a deep conversation with Stephen Jenkinson today. Stephen Jenkinson is a cultural activist, a teacher, an author, a ceremonialist. He is the creator and principal instructor of the Orphan Wisdom School, founded in 2010. And he has a master's degrees from Harvard in theology and at the University of Toronto in social work and is revolutionizing grief and dying in North America. As such, he is known in some circles as the angel of death. His work with palliative care has guided hundreds of people through their dying times. Some do call him a spiritual activist and some simply a poet. Stephen will be joined by a wonderful collaborator, Gregory Hoskins, a singer's singer, translating his rather full life into material that transforms a simple concert into something that resembles communion. So they'll be together in Moab September 17th at Star Hall to perform some newly minted material on what is perhaps the world's oldest subject. Nights of Grief and Mystery, the Rough Gods Duo Tour, today on This Week in Moab. Stephen, I want to thank you for meeting your life with such unremitting curiosity. And also for the song on Dark Roads, a recent release of yours. Uh, The song is Hippie Radio. As a practitioner of both radio and what you have called the death trade as hospice chaplain for Grant County, I thank you for including radio in the naming of that mystery. Uh, This sort of reaching resonance after the last note is strummed. So I'll start with your question posed in that song on that record. What is it about this time that makes dying so hard? Ah, what is it about our time that makes dying so hard? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm going to offer a couple of things in no particular order, or we'll see if the order can make sense of itself as we do it. Uh, One thing is that um, the emphasis we place on the notion that dying is inherently hard. I mean, you know, I don't think anybody even wonders about that certainly not in my presence nobody's ever done so and you but you have to ask yourself whether dying is inherently hard or becomes hard as a consequence of other things and those other things may or may not be negotiable in other words the fix may not be in you see and it may depend enormously on how we lived how we die may rely enormously upon how we lived. Well, it's, there's no may in the formulation, actually. That's that's what I learned. That's what I saw. And uh, I have no reason to exaggerate the circumstance to you here now. So <clears throat> if you live as if your death 
is a given, number one, and much more importantly, as if it's a kind of burden that's been entrusted to you, number two. Then the moment of your dying, not the moment, sorry, the, the time of your dying, the season of your dying, will be some kind of fulfilling of a certain sequence of quiet little vows that you and life exchanged when things were otherwise, when things were going reasonably well, not too well, but at least weren't terminal. So um, I've told the story different ways before, but see what you think. So I'm, I'm teaching a room full of uh, healthcare people, which is an uphill climb for me, typically. <laughs> and um, I said, all in favor of the proposition that everybody knows they're going to die, please raise your hand. And everybody looked at me like I was a child of misfortune, you know, that I obviously had an obvious learning disability. And uh, how could I ask such an embarrassingly obvious question? But I prompted them anyway, and I, you know, I played the stupid long enough to... Uh, keep the question in the air so it didn't collapse into another certainty that everybody doesn't need to wonder about. I said, just humor me. And eventually all the hands went up, as you'd expect. I said, right then. So we've established here for our purposes that everybody knows that everybody's going to die. And that's the way, that's, that's at work every day when we go there. Everybody knowing. I said, first of all, you have to understand, or at least consider, that my job would not exist if everybody knew they were going to die. Why? Because I'd have nothing to do. Because my job is predicated on, it was, it's far from apparent that everybody knew they were going to die. Even as they're dying, it's far from apparent that that's so. But we could say something else that's prior to the morbid time of life, and this is what it is. I'm old enough to remember the famous um, gas or oil shortage. I think it was in the late 70s or early 80s, somewhere in there. And I remember the fistfights at the pumps and the whole panic disorder and the whole thing. Now, if you had asked at the time, because everybody knew it was a ruse, right? It was just a manipulation of surplus and the rest. If you had asked everybody up and down the, the highway who were lining up for gas, is there enough gas? Is there enough oil in the ground for everybody forever and ever, amen? And you did this in America? Nine out of 10 people would have said yes. That was a conviction even then. There is enough gas forever. This is temporary aberration. It's going to get back to normal pretty soon, and we'll be fine. How do you know that people believed that? Well, I didn't say believe, did I? I said no. How do you know that they knew that, even though it wasn't true then, and it's, no, it's not any truer now? And the answer is, you have to observe their behavior. Not ask them what they believe. Observe them in the act of believing. That's how you do it. And in this case, you simply observe the buying habits. Are you buying as if there's enough gas forever? And generally speaking, even today, the answer tends to be yes. Okay, that's how you know that you know this. So take out the word gas in the whole formulation and plunk in the word die. And I ask you a simple question. How can you tell that among the people around you, there is a lived understanding called you're going to die. And it's a present tense reality, even though it refers to a future event. How can you tell that people know it? Well, you can tell that they fear it. You can tell that they're disturbed by it. You can tell that they'd rather not. You can tell those things, but none of those things would be called knowing 
really, would they? Knowing is supposed to enable you in some fashion, some kind of preparatory obligations in some fashion. There's no sign in these Anglo-Americas that I'm a product of that people know that they're going to die. And that's what the times have wrought, that dying is some kind of maybe land. It's a question of personal orientation and personal belief. It's a, you're on your own suddenly. There is no tradition to inherit, to negotiate, or even to object to. It's just simply, you know, as they say in AA, whatever you deem it to be, as if you have the capacity to deem death, the immensity that it is, eclipses most of our abilities, as it should. And I often said when I was in the trade, dying is God in the house. Hmm. And we're not, we don't have a lot of education, culturally speaking, in the etiquette of how to treat God in the house. That's the beginning of an answer to what you asked. Mm. Trees are such truth tellers. I mean, we have so much material at our disposal about how to let go. Each year, at about this time, abundantly, the arms holding all the creations just let it flutter and fall. So what's all the anticipatory dread about? Well... I, th- I think it it's understandable. I don't think it's a, some kind of poor judgment on our collective part. I think it goes like this. You know, America, the idea, hasn't always been. I mean, everybody knows that. America happened at a certain period of time, in certain conditions, pre- um, prompted into existence by certain people not by the universe, by certain peoples who are under certain kind of distress in their home countries. So it was founded by, by uh, flight risks. That's really the case. It was America, as an, I'm not talking about the United States now because I'm in Canada and it's, it's different here, but it's really no less the case in what I'm saying. That the people who came over to turn into us were running away from much more than they were coming to. Much, much more. And people who are on the run are not the best foundation for anything in terms of capacity, in terms of their convictions and beliefs and so forth. So one of the things that happened in the transatlantic crossing in the very earliest days is that only certain people from the old country came. Those people who were doing okay in the old country stayed. So it was, first of all, people who were not doing so well. And then it was people who maybe were not capable of doing so well, but just could get enough money together to get out and no more. And as they came across, we know that the conditions were so grim below decks that there was a good amount of of death on the trip. And who was the most vulnerable to dying on the trip to the typhus and so on? The answer is the very young and the very old, typically. So by the time they're washed up on shore, up and down the Atlantic coast, who were they now? Barely surviving people for whom the, the aged and the young had been stripped from them. So now you have early, you know, late teens through early adolescence as a predominant. So what you've lost coming across is 
on, the ongoing ability of the culture, the, the kind of new culture, if you will, to sustain its traditions and to sustain its understanding. This history lesson I'm giving you, it's very brief, is designed to illustrate one thing that comes at the end, which is this. When you're dying in the new world, you have no tradition available to you to make sense of what's being asked of you and what's, being, what's besetting you. That's what I meant earlier when I said you're on your own. So we lost an awful lot um, by leaving the old country and turning into us. An awful lot. And I know that's not a popular view, but I saw it every day in, in uh, attempting to work with dying people. That the poverty of their cultural understanding of where they were in their lives and what it asked of them was um, almost incalculable. The depth of the poverty was you couldn't plummet. That's why. I'm thinking here of the consequences of the actions of running away from our cultural roots and the old country, wherever that might be, and this sort of vacuum of action that we took along with us, the shadow. And so here we are. I'm curious how you even be a good ancestor when we live in a culture that is terrified of the least wrinkle on its skin? That's a very good question. Well, I mean, you practice being an ancestor by practicing your mortality. Because mortality is a prerequisite, is it not to becoming an ancestor? You've got to die first. If we're talking about an heir, that's something else. That's present tense. You're on the receiving end of what's preceded you. But if you're talking about being a, a uh, sort of once and future ancestor, then uh, two things seem to me to have to happen. One is you have to die, and the other one is you have to be claimed by the living. And if one of those things falls apart, for example, if, if dying turns into ruination and destruction and... Uh, and a, and a gross insult to you, then you're not going to pursue it with any kind of culturally oriented sense of obligation or responsibility to the generations to come. Because it's yours and you can do with it whatever you want to. Kind of like your life. Hmm. And the other half of it is, if you don't have a sense of continuity between the generations, not approval, okay, continuity, if you don't have it, and I don't think it's there in Anglo-North America, then you got a circumstance where people begin to cherry-pick amongst the ancestors they'd like to be aligned with, that they feel inspired by, that they feel complimented by. And the rest, the questionable ancestors, the so-called conqueror ancestors or settler ancestors and all the rest, what becomes of them as they're thrown under the bus ongoingly by the generations who are seeking self-improvement? Their isolation only grows. And if there is such thing as what we could call a living presence of ancestry, then it must be a very destitute circumstance indeed. It, re- it may very well be the city of the dead and not the land of souls. The way you live will determine how you die. You don't have a lot of choice in the matter. You think you do, but thinking you have choice is part of how you live. If basically you're a product of the consumer culture, where you think you get choice in everything and that's your right, 
how do you how do you think you're likely to come to your dying time it's another shopping exercise it's another exercise in self-expression right i'm suggesting to you that an alternative vision which is a, a much more restorative and redemptive vision is that your death is entrusted to you at your birth to take care of because it's a it's a precious thing and the way you execute your dying has virtually no consequence that's that's immediately available to us for you the person who's now dead but for the rest of us we live in the presence of the example that you established by how you died so if you die kicking and screaming and and grievance ridden and all the rest this is our inheritance collectively speaking and when we come to our dying time with that example in our mind can you imagine what the influence is well it's not hard to imagine because we're generations deep in the scenario I'm describing now mm. alchemy then let's talk about the interplay of your experimental forging of the rough guard Three, two, one. Alchemy, then. Let's talk about the interplay of your experimental forging with Rough Gods, the work you and your cohort Gregory Hoskins are bringing to Moab in September. There's this acute listening uh, your works reflect, this liminal way. Um, helps me lay my sights on things that are typically unseen, like the bridge between dimensions. It might be analogous. You know, I'm not an expert just because I'm, I'm the one who's doing it. You know, I'm, I'm keeping up my end by the performance of the matter. But yeah, it's uh, because it's not entertainment in the standard understanding of the term. There is no genre that in, in any way, even meagerly, seems to describe what we're up to. So we had to we had to craft an understanding because one wasn't available to us. And this is what I came up with. You know, the Greeks that we are so beholden to, culturally speaking, um, they basically invented the thing for us that we now call theater, which we're very big on and, and grateful for, and it's great as far as it goes. But I'm going to suggest to you now that theater is a consequence of the desecration, the desecration of ceremony the theater began it, in its early beginnings was ceremonial and it was the ceremony was subverted by the introduction of two elements that turned it into theater and one of them was the script and the other was the audience because you can't have an audience at a ceremony right you can't have onlookers the ceremony needs participants the circumstances are determined by the participation the outcome is reliant upon the, the deep, abiding, intelligent, and, and intuited um, participation of, uh, of the people. The script is there to forego reliance upon or resorting to the gods, because it predetermines the ending, you see. So we've, con we've tried to do something about the old understanding of theater and try to approximate ceremony instead without calling it such. But one of the ways we've done it is right out of the gate. The first thing that I come to is a piece that we've had available to us for years. We, just, we call it the invocation. And it begins something like this. Summoned or not, they say, 
the gods will be present. Maybe. It could be bad manners. And it could be bad luck. And nobody knows. So, welcome friends. For friends we may soon be. Friends are forged on that dark road. The one that's heading out of town. And we're headed there. And how shall we be now? And what shall we say now that the call and the summons and the plea has gone out? Ah, it's better that we make as though many a thing hangs there in the rafters above us and hangs in the balance below. As if what we, how we are to each other, that is how the lords of chance will be with us. As if what we say this very evening will bring in the saints and the ancients of days will bring down the darkness and the rough gods. That, I submit to you, is ceremonial, not theatrical. You can feel it, and uh, it is resonant. Mm. Stephen, thank you so much. You know, there's an awful lot. I lean heavily on synchronicity, and there's been an awful lot of it at play in me being here on the phone with you today. So sometimes what I like to do is just say hiya to whatever it is that bears me along. Like this morning, uh, I was, (laughs) I also am uh, fascinated by language, and the one that popped up this morning was the word threnody and it's a song oh, sorry I, the, the connection's not good what was the word threnody t-h-r-e-n-o-d-y a noun oh boy this is a new word for me what does that mean well uh, I, I'm in love with it song of lamentation 16, oh, okay. 1630s from the Greek threnodia or lamentation from threnos dirge lament uh plus old old lament uh greek threnos probably is from the imitative root der d-h-e-r to drone murmur hum the source also of the old english dren or drone gothic Ah. drunges of sound and greek tenethrene a kind of wasp and, and so I, I just want to say hi, Threnody, and thank you for doing it kind of namelessly instead of geeking out. But I thought you'd appreciate it because there is a word for what it, it sounds like you're doing. Uh, this, um, there's some alchemical back and forth with you and Gregory that's really <laughs> resonant. Uh, it seems like that synchronicity played a role in you two coming together and and doing modern threnody. Mm-hmm, yeah. Elegies and Beatitudes. That's what we traffic in. And cognitive dissonance. <laughs> for that's, that's true, too. Everyone. Um, I, I guess the other thing that happened, I just want to, as long as I'm on synchronicity, is to say, uh, let's see, Coleman the Elder popped up when I'm trying to just look for 
sometimes I go looking through a book and pop, it opens up that way. And it was uh, Praise the Bridge That Crosses You Over, again from the 1630s. So weird but true. I use it as a launch pad to ask you to talk about the ones who have uh, taught you or have been your bridge, perhaps like the apprenticeship with storytelling, kind of amazing, your life is... Who are the a bit about that you're, you're asking? I'm asking to, for you to, uh, I'm soft-serving you, um, request to talk about the bridge that carries us, uh, whether it's a teacher uh, or, again, the subliminal stuff that moves us, whether it's the person that was your storytelling teacher, yeah. if there are any praise songs about the people you collaborate with, invisible or otherwise. Excuse me. Yeah. I could, I mean, there's not that many, so if there was enough time, I could talk about them individually. Um, and you've mentioned one in particular. But I could, I could say something about what they made available to me, which is another way of praising them. And uh, one in particular was a thief. And he stole from me my adolescent uh, hued ability to slouch on the threshold of life and mope because I'd never seen the real thing. He stole that from me because he was the real thing. And he established a criteria for stand and deliver that has never left me and never blinked on me ever since. But if I put all the influences together into an understanding, it would be the word catastrophe. Of course, both of us know how the word is used now Excuse me. Uh, and the idea is that you avoid them at all costs and that they're visitations of gross misfortune and so forth. In actual fact, because you're a fan of etymology, I think you'd appreciate this one. Two words. The, the prefix is Greek, and it means, it describes uh, direction. It's a preposition that answers the question kind of where and kind of how, and it means down, and if it goes down for long enough, in down and in, something like this. Mm. So beneath a kind of obvious threshold. And then the root word, strof, is a, is a kind of technical word today that's used to refer to certain verse forms of poetry, but in its much older meaning it means anything that is gathered in a systematic fashion whereby it acquires a kind of strength by virtue of being woven or patterned in such a way that, that the individual fibers couldn't hold. If you put the word back together again, what's a catastrophe? And I say it in the piece that I just quoted to you. It, it goes something like this. Welcome to this catastrophe, to this old road for going down into the mystery days, the, maze, the days that were woven for you by those who came before you, whose longing after life made a path through the easy terrors and through all that boredom without end into life, and who loved being alive as much as anyone here, and for all of that died more or less on schedule, who angled not for Neverland, and not for ever, and ever, and ever, amen, but for now, and for us, and for this. That's my praise poem to them. I appreciate it. It's a, it's a music just right there. 
You know, I want to ask a feel, uh, a question that you've approached in some of your other interviews, but I'd appreciate another little go-round here. Uh, okay. Why is grief not a feeling, Stephen? <laughs> well, um, you know, I sound like the Pope, you know, when I make a declaration like that. and I mean, nobody should sound like the Pope, not even the Pope, perhaps. But, <laughs> I could I could pull back a bit and say make the following observation. If you insist that grief uh, resides in and around your feeling state or your feeling central command or whatever it is, then one of the things you're going to do is pray for it to pass. And like all feelings do, it will. And that means that there will be times, lots of times, when it's no longer available to you. So I'm putting a slightly different emphasis on it because I'm submitting to you that grief is a skillfulness. It's not a victimization. It's a skillfulness. It's a capacity not to endure, not to survive, nor to profit. The capacity for grief is the capacity to see life in its, in its unrelenting three dimensions. To understand that life is not built around what's good for you. To understand that the effort to be happy must be conducted in the presence of the likelihood of grief. In the same way that having a body and enjoying its pleasures has to be conducted in the presence of the inevitability of pain and frailties and failings. In other words, it's a package deal, you see. And any one feeling is not a package deal. Any one feeling is a discrete thing like a bone in your body. Grief is like a body. Thank you. Welcome. You have had death kind of all up in your lap early. You faced an early illness. It sounded like it perplexed your care providers and it brought you right to the door of departure, sounds like. Um, did it tenderize you this did it plant a seed for what became of you you know it'd be hard to argue that it didn't well, i don't have any sort of conscious through line that binds me to those those particular days and that visitation but i do remember one thing enduringly as a kind of almost a snapshot these are the days when uh, nobody was allowed to uh, stay with you beyond the visiting hours and so the, one of the nurses' jobs was to drive out your visitors when the uh, appointed hour arrived. And the visitor in this case was my mother. I was three and a half coming on to four years old, and I had spinal meningitis, and I was dying of it at the time. And if you can imagine it, the nurse's job included uh, obliging my mother to go home. And these are the days when the, uh, the doors, the safety doors to your room included a pane of that kind of glass with the wire in it kind of thing. Mm. And I can, from that day to this, I can still see my mother stopping outside the door once she was obliged to leave and the door had closed. She turned and looked through the glass at me. And she looked at me as if she may never see me again. And that will do something to you at any age. This speaks to the observation as a long time and prominent palliative care and 
the Children's Grief Center, some of your work specifically around this with kids, I think you've spoken very movingly about the, oh, maybe it's cognitive dissonance, I don't know what you would call it, uh, about um, how we are about children dying. And um, you were just sort of evincing this full life, that you had this uh, rather grown-up feeling of recognizing that when you were talking about your mother's gaze could you could you pick up the thread of uh the fullness of a life and capacity of youth regardless how long their lives may be right well yes you're right i i was um, i had the job of uh, getting families to find a way to having a dying children in their midst there's much easier ways to make a living than that, I'm sure. But I did it, and I did it for quite a while. And um, I was on the receiving end of an awful lot of radicalizing education through that. And one of the things, that, you know, oftentimes the things that radicalize you are not the things that you seek in terms of learning goals and objectives. They're, they come from somewhere else. And this is that category. There was a particular time, and you may have heard me a recording of a story somewhere, where um, the young girl was, uh, I think she was seven or so, and she was dying of leukemia, but not that day, but certainly she was. And she'd been re-hospitalized because of dehydration and so on. And I was with the family in the family room, which is a location for not the best of all people coming forward very often. It's a raw and... Uh, an uprooted place more often than not. And so I met with them briefly before I met with the child for the first time, and it became very apparent very quickly, and this is going to sound monstrous, but that the, the fundamental uh, grief of the circumstance was actually a grievance instead. And it went like this. For all of the sorrow and all of the, the bitterness that gathered around the inevitable and assured death of a seven-year-old in their midst. The thing that really got them was a kind of softer-edged um, betrayal of life that went like this. She doesn't even get to live a full life at seven. There's very few people that would disagree with that characterization, but I'm one of the people that would disagree. And so I simply said to them, you we're all pretty sure that she, and of course they just looked at me like, of, of course she's not going to get to live a full life. What are you asking? And I said, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we go down and find out so so we don't turn it into a guessing game, but actually get her to tell us if she's had a full life or not. And I mean, nobody would do it with me. So I offered to go down and ask her myself and come back and, and bring the news, bring her answers, and I did. And I mean, it's a very tender and very heartbreaking story what ensued. But I actually had to educate a seven-year-old on what a less-than-full life actually meant, including the fact, is it even possible to have a less-than-full life? And in, in fact, don't you need a sense of entitlement in order to have a sense that your life is less than full? And the book is supposed to is got to be wide open, right, and tell you you deserve, you know, 84.2 years or whatever, whatever the increments are, whatever the measurement scale is. So I actually I had to tell her, not persuade her, but tell her that the grown-ups think there's such a thing as a, a life that's not full, and they're afraid you might be one of those. Yours might be one of those. 
could you give me some examples of how full your life has been? And she did. I mean, it took a little, a little nudging, but she did. And I wrote them down and I came back and I had three answers. The family could only handle the first two. They, they were so dissolved in, um, in grief and not grievance because there was some realization, however subtle, that a seven-year-old had an understanding of life available to her by virtue of being seven that her parents and her grandparents and her aunts and uncles didn't seem to have available to them by virtue of being in the 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s. And that was a pretty amazing vision to have, and I'm glad I, I had it. I had it. Thank you for repeating it. Uh, this is the kind of conversation we deserve here in Moab, Utah. You're listening to Stephen Jenkinson and myself uh, talk about, well, basically orphan wisdom. Uh, orphan wisdom is the home of Stephen Jenkinson's writing and teaching work, uh, House for the Skills of Deep Living and Making Human Culture. Uh, it's a redemptive project that comes from where we come from. It's rooted in knowing history, being claimed by ancestry, and working for a time we won't see. Um, you you speak about the importance, uh, you know, our colonial history and being cut off ancestry-wise. I think it's very interesting at the very last part of a person's life, they often speak of seeing uh, ancestors and people. It was about the uh, experience there at the end and being able to connect with ancestry in spite of whatever religious conditioning or belief or faith or lack of it they had. Uh, so far, this is my experience. Can you speak to that? Well, it's not very wise, frankly, to play 11th hour roulette with your lived relationship with those from whom you come. It's just not wise. It's not wise for you, and it's not wise for them either. If there's such a thing as a living tendril that we call ancestry, if it's a living present thing, then it seems to me that some kind of purpose, some kind of needfulness in the present moment in this world. What would a people, what would a whole culture look like if it had lived its collective life in the absence of an ongoing, mutually obligatory relationship with its ancestry. My answer would be, look around, baby. You don't have to look far to know what it looks like. This is what it looks like. So it's a caution. You know, our dilemmas are a cautionary tale, aren't they? they, they they're a cautionary tale that somehow we refuse to tell ourselves. It should be there in place of the good night stories and the you're going to be okay vignettes and the, you know, think a better thought stuff. The cautionary tales belong now because we're in a time that may be unprecedented and very much of it is our doing. So how do you mobilize and operationalize a sense of, of um, personal participation in the wrongdoing that has become our way of life? How do you actually do that? One of the ways to do it is you become accountable to your ancestry. Accountable to, not for them, 
right? Of course not. You can't, you can't live in such a way as to remove the consequences of your ancestors. But you can be responsible to them by understanding yourself as their latest, greatest chance to get right in you what they could get not get right when they were themselves alive. And that your life's not entirely your own. It's a place where your ancestry can be redeemed. That would be the plea I'd make. You know, at some point you have to decide and then decide again and yet again throughout the course of your days whether you think <coughs> dying belongs to life or is an enemy of life. And you may not think of it in those terms, but you do decide ongoingly. And the, the high-tech, you know, medicalization of dying is a war on the understanding that dying belongs to life or that life belongs to dying. I mean, I'm a farmer much of the time when I'm not traveling around. And I can tell you that one of the things the farm teaches you re relentlessly all day long if you pick up a pinch of, pinch of earth and you ask yourself or whoever's with you, what is this stuff? Because you get earth and they, if the people are more symbolically inclined, they might say life or potential or, you know, stuff like that. But that, it's none of those things. It's death. It is everything that failed to live forever that no longer is alive in this moment in the form that it was when it was born or created or was planted or what have you. That's what dirt is. And dirt, it turns out to be, is the, is the mothership for things that grow. Which is to say then, every growing thing, ourselves included, we're rooted in death. We're rooted not just in the inevitability of death, but in the necessity of death. <clears throat> That's how the earth comes about. <clears throat> and, you know, from a more let's say spiritual understanding uh, maybe it's not more spiritual no that's not the right way to say it <laughs> from a, an alternative vision of it that's not purely symbolic or allegorical you could say that your life is lived in the presence of what preceded you that's the hummus if you will the, the, the dirt, the loam that sustains you not always in the way that you'd want or the way that you recognize or the way that you welcome or are grateful for but nonetheless some kind of sustenance is there for which your life is to give thanks, you see, as I do as a farmer all the time. My farming practice includes gratitude, not only for the stuff that works out, but for the stuff that is a questionable outcome for what I had in mind. The whole catastrophe. That's right. The whole going down and in into the mystery days. What a rich pleasure it will be to sit in Star Hall mid-September and hear you and Gregory, and you will have a drummer? Uh, we don't know yet. You know, it's, uh, you know, first time out in three-plus years, things have changed enormously in the, in the world of touring. Things are immensely expensive in a way that they weren't a few years ago. You can't get travel insurance like you could, etc., etc., and so simply showing up in somebody's town to perform is Herculean undertaking. So we just don't know who can, who can afford to have with us, but certainly it'll be the, the kernel of the Knights of Grief and Mystery from its beginning 
myself and Gregory, will be there with uh, a show that we've never done before. But three quarters of it is brand new uh, material that we've written and uh, scored and learned uh, either during the pandemic or in these months since it seems to have ebbed slightly enough to allow us to go back on the road. And we're very keen to do so. I'm grateful for the delay. You are going to be in Moab uh, kind of at the opening salvo of the pandemic and uh, at the launching point of a big world tour is taking you everywhere and then, but no, um, not at all. You had to really pivot and recreate. It kind of blew up the lab of how we did things. Oh, it did. We had 70 cities we were going to on four continents in 2020 and not one of those shows got done yeah that's right crazy but here you are with something brand new and we actually get a, a debut uh moab awaits it uh, with uh, great pleasure Stephen. thank you ever so much genuinely looking forward to this and we understand it to be a privilege we we just can't wait to have you here uh the land itself makes for a a good audience. We'll put it that way. <laughs> the orphanwisdom.com thing is the place where the whole itinerary is because you know, not everybody's in Moab and we're going to a lot of different places and if you can help us get the word out, it's a very small scale thing in terms of you know, budget and overhead and, and entourage and all of that kind of thing. And um, it's a kind of guerrilla, guerrilla campaign you know, against, um, against uh, futility. <laughs> so we could use all the help we can get not so that anybody can get rich which ain't going to happen here but so that we can be slightly more proud of ourselves the morning after than we were the night before <laughs> and I, I really thank you for your attention and your willingness to ask these things too we'll see you soon Yes. Yes, I hear you. Me too. <laughs> not necessary, though. <laughs> High praise, but not necessary. How about this? A human being pronouncement on the mysteries of life, the ones that wrap itself around our ordinary days, is something like a water spider pronouncing over the depths of the ocean. It's understandable, but it's kind of beginner's error, really. And I don't know about your education, but I certainly know mine was a war on mystery. That's how it was conducted. Like mystery was the problem, mystery was the gap, knowledge was the solution, more knowledge equals less mystery equals a better life for us all. My God, your God, somebody's God, come on now. How about this? Could it come to pass that we could be mystified and consider that being edified instead of being stymied? Maybe so. And how about this one? It would appear to me that we have been made and graced and to a certain degree, let's say troubled, by the capacity to imagine eternity. But our imagining itself is tied to the coming and going of days. Now, you could consider that some kind of taunt. You could, or you could consider it some kind of assignment whereby you might get to make peace 
in your days with the ending of days and call that a mystery that has you in mind instead of proceeding without you. So, Mr. Light Man, I'm going to go right over here. And I'll see ya. <laughs> Mr. Light Man, I know he's up there. No mystery there, aren't there, you see? Beautiful thing. Friends, you can practice mystery. You can practice it. As long as you don't demonize it and consider it to be a gap in your understanding, it becomes the rest of your understanding instead. That's not a bad deal. It's a good gig. And here's how you can practice. Oh, there's many ways to do it. But the one I'm thinking of would be known as radio. Of all things, how does it come to pass that a radio is our Ph.D.? in the mysteries of life. Well, if you've ever laid there in the middle of the night with a transistor radio under your pillow, trying to keep it real quiet so you don't get busted, dialing in Rangoon and Luxembourg and pirate radio and all other mysteries of life, well, you understand what I'm saying. There's something about radio that gives you all you need to know in order to be mystified by the ordinariness of days. And if you can pull that off, People will flock to your door, whether you want it or not. Well, I was uh, the death guy for a while, and rather uh, notorious in this regard. So I got a mysterious invitation to appear at the local radio station and give forth on the dilemmas surrounding dying. They characterize it this way. What is it about dying that's so hard in our time? I consider that to be emphasis on the wrong syllable. And so I changed the whole operation, and I said, for the next two hours of the interview, I said, no, what is it about our time that makes dying so hard? And that's the way I proceeded. Now, the invitation was to a radio station. Like a fool, I was looking for a radio station. I lived way out in the countryside. You might think, living in a city, that the city's got the market cornered on weird. And that'd be understandable, because I've been here for a day or so. I know what you mean. <laughs> but I will say this. The country has got its own weird that the city can't even dream. I live out there, and I'm here to tell you, there's country weird galore. And one of the weirdnesses out there, you would know it well as hippie radio. Uh, hippie radio is strange days out in the middle of quote-unquote nowhere at all. And it's hippie radio that invited me to appear, you see. So like a fool, I'm looking for a radio station. But hippie radio don't need no radio station. What they need is somebody's house and a lot of illegal wiring coming out of the house, <laughs> which they figured out. And so I finally caught on to what was going on. I started looking for a lot of illegal wire coming out of the house, and I found it. Knocked on the door. I said, come on in. We'll be waiting for you. Lord. I walked in the kitchen, which turned out to be the studio. <laughs> and I looked up, and there's egg carton stapled to the ceiling. I knew I was there. <laughs> Sound attenuation for hippie radio egg cartons stapled to the ceiling. So I took my place, and he took his place, and he swung the mic boom out of the closet, wherever he got it from, and it hung between us, and he leaned in real close. And he took the spliff out of his mouth, and he said, because hippie radio, right? And they're only broadcasting to 17 people anyway, and the 17 people are doing the same thing, so happy days. So he said to me, tell me, I've been studying up on you pretty carefully, and it seems to me you know how to slow down time. Would that be true? He said. Now, friends, if anybody ever asks you that, I'm your temporary but rather intense spiritual advisor this evening. I'm here to say, just say no. 
So I said, why don't we go on to the subject at hand, the one you asked me to come to. I dug in and I started to talk. It was an hour and 47 minutes into the two hours and I'd done pretty well. For he had asked me to bring five songs along with me to fill in the gaps when I ran out of juice or gas or, or give a shit or something. We hadn't played one song yet. 15 minutes left to go. So he said to me, could you choose one? I said, yeah, okay. And so I had him play a Tuvan song, a Mongolian song, with horse-head fiddle playing and overtoned throat singing, and, and that's all, nothing else. And it was a sound that was made because of the longing for a long-gone friend. Or maybe, maybe it was the goneness itself. You know, there is something about radio that's so precious to us, and it seems overlooked, and this is what it is. When they play a song, and those last notes hung in the air as they do, and there's no visual, you get to inhabit that quiet in a way that you can't when there's sound. And if you think about it at all, it'll hit you that that silence at the end of the song turns out not to be the end of the song. It turns out to be the rest of the song, the part that the singer and the recording people and the label and everybody else lost track of or didn't remember or couldn't hear. But it's there in that quiet just afterwards. And he played that song and when it stopped, for some reason, he let that quiet sit there. And I did too. And it hit me in that moment, as it had never done before. Do you know, that must be how it is when we die. We stop making sound, and we stop wishing we could, and then, and then we stop. And that silence that's there, after we stop, turns out not to be our elimination from the scene, or our disappearance, or even our demise. That silence is as full as anything that we were able to come up with when we were healthy and we were well. It's the rest of the story, not the end. Mystery and grief. So the silence hung in the air, and that young man looked at me, genuinely perplexed, for the first time. And he said, why did you want us to play that one? Well, this is what I said to him. Imagine that you had lived your life in such a way that upon your departure from among us, someone who knew you was moved so deeply by your ending and by your goneness that they made that kind of music. Imagine that someone who didn't know you overheard a sound that could only have come into this world because you left it. And that person hearing that sound, well, it made them want to live even more deeply 
though they were sitting ever so deeply in the midst of their life, even so. You see, I said, I wanted the people listening, all 17 of them, to know what their life could sound like after they die, how that all could be, for that is how it all could be. And that's it for this week in Moab. I'm your host, Christy Williams-Stunton. The music for this program, the intro was from a group called Broke for Free, and the song was Murmur, and the uh, outro, a bit of the song from a release called Dark Roads and Hippie Radio. For more information about the Rough Gods Duo Tour, or to register for this event, go to orphanwisdom.com for the event Nights of Grief and Mystery in Moab and register there. This performance will be offered free to the public with donations gratefully accepted to the Grand County Hospice Program. For more information about Grand County Hospice, you can go to Moab Regional Hospital and look for Grand County Hospice there. And you can also give them a call at 435-719-3772.